it trashes our strength and our economy because every gunshot wound in America costs us hundreds of thousands of dollars. But that's nothing compared to what it's doing to our nation's soul. He's right. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, we're heard on WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for the Bradcast. Uh, Just before a pre-planned trip to Ohio on Tuesday morning, President Joe Biden, in a brief statement at the White House, lamented the mass shooting at a Boulder, Colorado grocery store on Monday that left 10 people dead coming just days after a shooter in Atlanta killed eight, including six Asian-American women. President Biden noted, quote, another American city has been scarred by gun violence and the resulting trauma, going on to call on the U.S. Senate to pass two background check bills already approved with a bipartisan vote in the filibuster-free U.S. House and for Congress to reenact an assault weapons ban as had been in place for a decade before it was allowed to expire during the George W. Bush administration, after which mass killings in the U.S., like the one carried out on Monday in Boulder, allegedly by a 21-year-old man, have skyrocketed in the years since. There's still a great deal we don't know about the killer and the motivation of the killer in Boulder, Colorado and other critical aspects of this mass shooting. I've been briefed this morning by the Attorney General of the United States, the Director of the FBI. I've spoken with the Governor, and uh, I'll be speaking with the Mayor on on the aircraft. We're working very closely with the state and local law enforcement officials, and they're going to keep me updated as they learn more. 
You're going to ask me to speculate. Understandably, you'd ask me to speculate about what happened, why it happened. And I'm not going to do that now because we don't have all the information. Not until I have all the facts. But I do know this. As president, I'm going to use all the resources at my disposal to keep the American people safe. As I said, at this moment, a great deal remains unknown. But three things are certain. First, 10 lives have been lost and more families have been shattered by gun violence in the state of Colorado. And Jill and I are devastated. And uh, the feeling, I just can't imagine how the families are feeling, the victims whose futures were stolen from them, from their families, from their loved ones, who uh, now have to struggle to go on and try to make sense of what's happened. Less than a week after the horrific murders of eight people and the assault on the AAPI community in Georgia, while the flag was still flying half-staff for the tragedy, another American city has been scarred by gun violence and resulting trauma. And the state that I even hate to say it because we were saying it so often, my heart goes out. Our hearts go out for the survivors the, who had to, uh, had to flee for their lives and who hid, terrified, unsure if they would ever see their families again, their friends again. The consequences of all this are deeper than I suspect we know. By that, I mean the mental consequences, the feeling of, anyway, it's just been through too many of these. The second point I want to make is my deepest thanks to the heroic police and other first responders who acted so quickly to address the situation and keep uh, the members of their community safe. And to state the obvious, the obvious, I commend the exceptional bravery of Officer Eric Talley. And I send my deepest condolences to his family, his close, close family and seven children. You know, when he pinned on that badge yesterday morning, he didn't know what the day would bring. I want everybody to think about this. Every time an officer walks out of his or her home and pins that badge on, the family member that they just said goodbye to wonders whether they'll subconsciously, will they get that call, the call that his wife got. He thought he'd be coming home to his family and his seven children. But when the moment the act came, Officer Tully did not hesitate in his duty, making the ultimate sacrifice in his effort to save lives. <clears throat> That's a definition of an American hero. And thirdly, I want to be very clear. This is the one thing I do know enough to say on in terms of what's happened there. While we're still waiting for more information regarding the shooter, his motive, the weapons he used, the guns, the magazines, the weapons, the modifications that apparently have taken place to those weapons that are involved here. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. We should do it again. We can close the loopholes in our background check system, including the Charleston loophole. That's one of the best tools we have right now to prevent gun violence.
The Senate should immediately pass, let me say it again, the United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House pass bills that close loopholes in the background check system. These are bills that receive votes of both Republicans and Democrats in the House. This is not and should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives, and we have to act. We should also ban assault weapons in the process. I'll have much more to say as we learn more, but I wanted to be clear. Those poor folks who died left behind families that leaves a big hole in their hearts. And, and, we can save lives, increasing the background checks so that they're supposed to occur, and eliminating assault weapons and the size of magazines. We don't know all the detail yet on that. But I'll be talking to you more later today or in the next couple of days about what else we know. May God bless you all and uh, those families who are mourning today because of gun violence in Colorado and Georgia, all across the country. We have to act so there's not more of you. There's fewer of you as time goes on. Thank you so much. The President of the United States speaking at the White House on Tuesday morning following the latest mass shooting in the U.S., this one in Boulder, Colorado. Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse, who represents Boulder, said in a statement about the shooting, quote, like my fellow Coloradans, my heart is heavy in grief and in anguish. Our community is strong. It is kind and it is resilient. And we will come together and support each other during this tragedy. I weep for the families of my constituents who have tragically lost their lives in yet another mass shooting. Enough is enough, he says. Americans should feel safe in their grocery stores. They should feel safe in their schools, their movie theaters, and their communities. While Congress dithers on enacting meaningful gun violence prevention measures, Americans and Coloradans are being murdered before our very eyes, day after day, year after year. It doesn't have to be this way, the congressman says. There are steps we can take and must take to protect our community if we are truly invested in saving lives, then we must have the willpower to act and to pass meaningful gun reform. The time for inaction is over. Democratic U.S. Senator from Colorado Michael Bennett's statement noted, quote, My heart goes out to the families of the Coloradans, including a Boulder police officer whose lives were tragically taken by a senseless act of gun violence. As the investigation continues, we need to revisit a national conversation about gun violence that does not regress into partisanship. It's long past time for Congress to take meaningful action to keep deadly weapons out of the wrong hands. Colorado's former Democratic governor, now also U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper, said, Our state grieves tonight as we mourn 10 more Coloradans senselessly killed by gun violence. We all share Boulder's pain, pain that hits home, Columbine, Arapahoe, Platte Canyon, STEM School Highlands Ranch, Planned Parenthood, Aurora, and now Boulder. More needs to be done to prevent dangerous weapons from falling into the wrong hands. He also says enough is enough. 
Democratic Governor Jared Polis said as spring sprung this weekend and vaccines continue to get into arms, lightness creeped back in only for the darkness to descend on us again. Today, he said, we saw the face of evil. I am grieving with my community and all Coloradans. Democratic U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, quote, for a second time in a week, our nation is being confronted by the epidemic of gun violence. Too many families in too many places are being forced to endure this unfathomable pain and anguish. Action is needed now to prevent this scourge from continuing to ravage our communities. That is why this month the House passed H.R. 8, she said, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, and H.R. 1446, the Enhanced Background Checks Act, two common-sense gun violence prevention measures. And I would add they are the absolutely lowest hanging fruit when it comes to uh, gun violence prevention measures on the long list of measures that could and should be taken nationally. If only Republicans would allow a vote on anything related to guns in the U.S. Senate, where they have not only blocked reforms, but blocked even a simple up or down vote on any of these things for well over a decade now. On any measure that might help the American people to stay even marginally safer from the continuing scourge of massive gun violence in the U.S. These, of course, are the very same people who pretend to give a damn about things like national security and the security of the American people when it comes to issues at, you know, the border or from acts of foreign terrorism. Republican Congresswoman, though she interestingly describes herself as congressman in her statement, <laughs> Lauren Boebert of Colorado, the co-chair of the Congressional Second Amendment Caucus, who was often photographed with assault weapons like the kind that were apparently used to kill 10 of her fellow Coloradans on Tuesday in Boulder. She said, quote, I am praying to God above, who is known as the great comforter to provide peace, comfort, and healing to those who have lost a loved one. While some elected officials have already started using the shooting to advance a political agenda, she says, I refuse to do so. I will not blame society at large for the sick actions of one man, and I will not allow lawbreakers to dictate the rights of law-abiding citizens. Unclear if uh, she's concerned about the rights of the uh, law-abiding citizens who were killed in that grocery store. She said, Mr. Rogers once encouraged us in times of tragedy to, quote, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Today, she said, I am looking at Eric Talley, a father of seven and dedicated public servant. Mr. Talley made the ultimate sacrifice while protecting his community. His bravery and heroism will not be forgotten. There has understandably been much coverage of Officer Tally, who was killed at the grocery store on Tuesday. I'm sorry, on Monday, leaving behind seven children after risking and ultimately losing his life in the course of doing his job. There was, however, another bunch of heroes who have not yet received the same notice, but deserve uh, deserve that notice, at least in my opinion, and they deserve at least as much. In the hours after uh, 10 
people were killed in that mass shooting at a King Super supermarket in Boulder, Colorado. The president of the union representing the employees who reportedly helped the customers throughout the fatal situation could only describe them with one word, heroes. Kim Cordova, the president of United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW, Local 7, told 9 News KUSE in Boulder, quote, we know that when they heard gunshots, some of the workers grabbed co-workers, also led customers out to safety through various exits throughout the store, including the back dock and the back area of the store. Cordova, recognizing the risk to their lives these essential workers have made with little or no thanks over the past year simply by showing up to work to make sure that Americans are able to eat amid a deadly pandemic. She noted how these King Supers employees were already heroic for what they have done over the past year. Monday's tragedy amplified that even more, she said. They work during every man-made or natural disaster, and now they again stepped up, helped save customers and members of the community. They continue to be heroes. I agree. Unfortunately, she said, these workers are going to be traumatized over this situation, but they really acted as heroes as they've been throughout this whole pandemic, she said. They really care about their community and their customers and each other. Now they were faced with this tragedy. While the union represents about 30 store employees at this particular location, Cordova said that they uh, hope to uh, help all of the staff, the union does, uh, hopes to help all of the staff as needed, in the coming days, Cordova said the union will work with King Supers to get in-store counseling for the employees and figure out what other benefits or resources are appropriate. It is nice to have a union who has your back and even has the back of those uh, of your non-union co-workers, especially when half of the U.S. Congress decidedly does not have those workers' backs. In addition to measures to help curb gun violence, the U.S. Senate is also failing to take action on the Protect the Right to Organize, or the PRO Act, so far, which has already been passed in the filibuster-free U.S. House, only to go on to the Senate, where unless the filibuster is killed or reformed in some fashion, that bill will also likely die, despite false Republican claims that they support working people, if not so far, anyway, a bill that would actually allow those working people to collectively bargain for their own rights in all 50 states. But rather than waiting for Congress on gun safety measures and uh, seemingly in even in defiance of state lawmakers, the Boulder City Council had taken measures to at least try to help keep their own residents safe back in 2018 only to be blocked by a judge citing state and federal law just days ago. The city of Boulder, Colorado, barred assault weapons in 2018 as a way to try and prevent mass shootings like the one that killed 17 at, high, at a high school in Parkland, Florida, earlier that same year. But 10 days after that ban was blocked in court, the city was rocked by its own mass shooting tragedy when 10 people were killed 
including that Boulder police officer at the grocery store. As we go to air, though not yet confirmed by police, the alleged shooter appears to have had both a semi-automatic AR-15 rifle and a semi-automatic pistol. How he purchased the weapons, or if the city ordinance would have prevented him from buying or possessing them within city limits, if it hadn't been blocked, well, that is still unknown. Uh, Yet, Washington Post notes for Don Reinfield, the co-founder of the Colorado gun prevention group Blue Rising, the, quote, appalling timing of the recent court decision was hard to ignore. She told the Washington Post, we tried to protect our city. It's so tragic to see the legislation stuck down, struck down and days later to have our city experience exactly what we were trying to prevent. Rachel Friend, a city council member, made a similar observation on Twitter, adding that she was, quote, heartsick and angry and mostly so, so sad. But the Colorado State Shooting Association... One of the plaintiffs that sued Boulder over the assault weapons ban rejected that sentiment, arguing in a statement that, quote, emotional sensationalism about gun laws would cloud remembrance of the victims. They said, quote, there will be a time for the debate on gun laws. Really? When is that time? They said there will be a time for the discussion on motives. There will be a time for a conversation on how this could have been prevented. They said in a statement, really, really, when? When is the time for that conversation, Colorado Shooting Association? But today, they said, is not the time. Oh, darn. Well, I guess we'll get to it later. Let me know when that time is, Colorado State Shooting Association. The north-central region of Colorado alone, the Post notes, has seen as many as nine school shootings since the Columbine massacre back in 1999, which left 12 students and a teacher dead. Four other major shootings have occurred within 20 miles of the high school, including a 2012 shooting at a movie theater, you, you may remember, in Aurora, that injured 60 and left 12 dead. But I guess it's still not time to discuss what to do about it. Even with all of those shootings since 1999, let us know when it's time to talk about it. The earliest of those uh, incidents, as well as the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida in 2018, pushed Boulder officials to take this action. City Attorney Tom Carr told the local paper The Daily Camera at the time in March of 2018, I hope and pray we never have a mass shooting in Boulder. What this ordinance is about is reducing on the margins the ease with which somebody could do that. That was back in 2018. With unanimous support from the city council, the law banned the possession, the transfer, and the sale of most shotguns and certain pistols and semi-automatic rifles. It also established a permit system for people who had previously owned one of those guns and, uh, and, and banned large capacity magazines as well, with the capacity to accept more than 10 rounds. Carr, uh, the, attorney, the city attorney, said at the time, if you look at most of the mass shootings, the guns were purchased legally. I see this as an ordinance that throws in one more barrier to someone who's contemplating such a horrible act. 
With few steps taken by state or federal government officials, we had to start somewhere, said Don Renfield of the Blue Rising Group. When, the, when there continues to be a mass shootings, when do we take a stand? The ordinance in Boulder generated vigorous opposition from gun rights activists across the state who are apparently more concerned about the rights of guns than they are of human beings. On the day of the vote back in 2018, advocates from around Colorado descended on Boulder, many of them carrying concealed rifles. Well, that'll show them. Carrying those concealed rifles into city government buildings. After it passed, the law was then challenged in state district court by two Boulder residents, a local gun shop, and the Colorado State Shooting Association, according to the Denver Post. Richard Westfall, the resident's attorney, did not immediately respond to a message from the Washington Post early on Tuesday. I wonder why. Maybe because it's not time to talk about his successful lawsuit to allow assault weapons into Boulder, despite the residents who live there deciding that they don't want them. And deciding through a unanimous vote of their own city council. Despite that, on March 12th, this month, Boulder County District Judge Andrew Hartman sided with, uh, with Westfall, the attorney, with the Colorado State Shooting Association and with the rest of the plaintiffs, saying that according to a 2003 Colorado state law, cities and counties cannot restrict guns that are otherwise legal under federal and state law, proving once again that Republicans don't actually support small governments, that they don't actually believe that local governments and local residents know what is best for them at the local level, as Republicans pretend to believe. Apparently, that is only something that Republicans say when they can weaponize that lie in order to block any laws that they don't like at the state or federal level. Oh, then oh, it's about local rights, local government, small government. They know best. Judge Hartman wrote, wrote the, uh, the need for statewide uniformity favors the state's interest in regulating assault weapons. He wrote this a week and a half ago, striking down the Boulder law. He said Boulder's ordinance, quote, could create a ripple effect across the state by encouraging other municipalities to pass their own bans. Oh, the horror that would be. Thanks for helping to prevent that from happening, Judge. I know there are... Ten families, at least, in Boulder today who really appreciate you looking out for them. The National Rifle Association. Remember them? Yes, despite being massively corrupt, facing a lawsuit by the state of New York, which hopes to put them out of business, at least in the state, and after uh, playing millions of Americans for dupes and suckers and chumps, the terrorist-supporting organization of grifters, yes, they still exist. The NRA cheered the ruling in Boulder just 10 days ago on Twitter, noting that its lobbying arm had supported the lawsuit against the ban, tweeting, quote, In case you missed it, a Colorado judge gave law-abiding gun owners something to celebrate. In an, an NRA-supported case, he ruled that the city of Boulder's ban on commonly owned rifles like AR-15s and 10-plus round mags was preempted by state law and, in all caps, they note, struck them down. 
Well, isn't that fantastic, NRA? Congratulations. I am sure you are still celebrating today because while this is not the time I know to talk about what to do about gun violence, apparently, it is always the time to celebrate the violence caused by them, apparently. The day after Judge Hartman's ruling, 10 days ago, city officials who follow the law, whether they like it or not, instructed Boulder police to stop enforcing the ban even as they decide whether or not they will appeal the judge's ruling. But in the wake of the Boulder shooting, gun violence prevention advocates said the importance of preserving such a ban had only become more evident. Colorado State Rep Tom Sullivan, a Democrat, who ran for office after his son Alex was killed in the Aurora movie theater shooting, said that he helped lobby the state house in Denver for background checks and magazine limits. Neither Congress nor the state legislature, he noted, had the political capital to go as far as the Boulder City Council did. The assault weapons put the mass in the shootings, he told the Post. That's what gets the numbers up. That's what gets the assault weapons that were able to fire as many rounds as were fired in the theater, in the schools, in Parkland, he said. And now, sadly, at the grocery store in Boulder. Take a quick break and we'll... uh, Try to come up with something a little cheerier today on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So uh, we have been talking quite a bit uh, of late on this show about the need to reform the filibuster because, well, if Democrats are going to have any chance of moving forward with anything you know, with what has actually turned out to be a rather progressive agenda coming out of both the White House and out of the uh, out of Democrats in Congress, specifically in the U.S. House, including if they want to have any chance of moving any sort of substantive gun safety reforms. I mean, there's only so much that they can do under the Senate's reconciliation rules, which allow uh, largely only budget-related stuff to pass with a simple majority. Uh, Everything else requires overcoming the need for 60 votes in order to defeat a filibuster. Everything else, therefore, legislatively for now, must somehow get those 60 votes. That means that 10 Republicans need to somehow be won over 
which will be no easy feat when, in fact, the entire Republican caucus in both the House and the Senate would not even offer one single vote in support of Joe Biden's incredibly popular American rescue plan to clean up the disastrous mess left behind by Donald Trump on COVID. And if Republicans can't even find one single vote to support a measure that is supported by more than 70 percent of the American people, and anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of Republicans, well, how are they going to get any votes for anything else? And though uh, Democrats have enough votes on their own, barely, to change the rules on the filibuster, there have been some, most notably West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Arizona's Kirsten Sinema, who have opposed killing or even reforming the undemocratic Jim Crow era Senate rule. Last week, however, that started to change at yeah, least just, a little bit. Just a little bit. Noticeably. Around the edges there. Joe Biden. Uh, and actually, this is a pretty big margin. Joe <laughs> Biden, uh, who had previously been opposed to doing away with the legislative filibuster. By the way, Republicans got rid of it when it came to the filibuster for U.S. Supreme Court justices who have a lifetime appointment to uh, decide what legislation is actually constitutional and what is not. Republicans had no problem doing away with the filibuster for that. But in any event, for the legislative filibuster to stop laws from actually passing, Joe Biden had previously been opposed to uh, doing away with that. He's a longtime Senate institutionalist. He finally came out in favor last week of supporting at least a talking so-called talking filibuster, which would at least force the minority blocking legislation to actually stand make themselves seen and, you know, talk in order to keep a vote from happening rather than just signaling that they want a filibuster and forcing the majority to somehow go out and find 60 votes in order to end it before they can actually get to a straight up or down majority vote on any measure. In fact, it doesn't actually take 60 votes to pass an actual measure. It's still a majority vote in the U.S. Senate, but you have to get 60 votes in order to uh, invoke cloture, which ends debate on an issue so that you can get to that simple majority vote. If they can't get the 60 votes, then they can't get to that 60 uh, that simple majority vote. Well, we had a bit more movement from Democrats late last week and over the weekend. California's Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, who has also been a longtime defender of the filibuster, on Friday night, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe when she was hoping no one would notice... <laughs> She now says that she is, quote, open to changing the way the uh, filibuster rules are used in the Senate. Uh, she said there are many significant issues Congress needs to address. Just this week, we saw a, 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 a union of gun violence, violence against women and hate crimes in the tragic shootings in Atlanta. That was before the Colorado shooting. She said, I have tried for years to pass legislation in these areas. This month, the House passed bills to improve background checks for gun purchases and reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act, among other key legislation. Ideally, she said, the Senate can reach bipartisan agreement on those issues, as well as on a voting rights bill. But... If, the, if that proves impossible and Republicans continue to abuse the filibuster by requ requiring cloture votes, I am open, she said, to changing the way the Senate filibuster rules are used. 
She said, I don't want to turn away from Senate traditions. But I also don't believe one party should be able to prevent votes on important bills by abusing the filibuster. You know, one of those Senate traditions, if I'm not mistaken, was that women could not serve in the U.S. Senate. I don't know. I'm just saying maybe I'm wrong about that. But, you know, there's a lot of traditions in the U.S. Senate that maybe their time has come and gone. That's what she said in any event in her statement on Friday night, in case you didn't notice, like most people apparently didn't. So there is some movement in the right direction. Also, Senator Martin Heinrich, Democrat from uh, New Mexico, who, along with Feinstein, was a signatory to a bipartisan letter letter to uh, Senate leadership led by Senators Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, and Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, uh, to preserve the filibuster. That letter was written previously. But uh, Senator Martin Heinrich, a Democrat from New Mexico, also now has appeared to uh, reverse course over the past week by signaling an openness to changing the procedure, citing the H.R. 1 for the People's Act, um, that voting rights package. And then Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin, the second highest ranking Democrat in the Senate after Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, on Sunday he reiterated his support Again, as the second highest ranking Democrat in the Senate, he reiterated his support for reforming the filibuster just days after Biden had come out in support of a talking filibuster in order to make the procedure at least more painful to carry out for the Senate minority. Last week, Durbin delivered a floor speech in favor of reforming the filibuster by calling the current usage of the procedural rule, quote, a weapon of mass obstruction. He said it is, quote, making a mockery of American democracy. That's not hard to do these days. (laughs) He criticized the filibusters, quote, misuse by some senators to block legislation that Senate Democrats are trying to pass. He then doubled down on that stance on Sunday during an interview on CNN, referencing the need for immigration legislation that he has tried for about a decade now to pass. The Dream Act for young immigrants coming to this country, uh, but he has complained that even though the legislation has majority support in the U.S. Senate, it has been blocked five different times from even getting an up or down vote there. We are desperately in need to rewrite our immigration laws to stop this mess at the border and to stop the problems that we face. To do it, we need a bipartisan majority, 60 senators under the current rules. Mm -hmm. Can we do it? Well, if 10 come forward and join all the Democrats, yes. So it's a challenge to my colleagues. Make it work. Right now, we know that the 60-vote requirement has stopped the Senate from meaningful activity. Will you need to change the 60-vote threshold, and will you have the votes to do that? Well, I I certainly support the talking filibuster as uh, proof positive that if someone cares enough to stop the Senate in its tracks, to say to the Senate, you cannot even consider the measure that is before you. Is it too much to ask them to stand at their desk to show that personal commitment? Right now, they phone it in. They call the cloakroom, the room right off the floor of the Senate chamber, and say, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to do a filibuster. Stop that bill on the floor. That's all it takes now. And some senators start a filibuster on Friday, go home for the weekend, and come back on Monday to see how they're doing. A talking filibuster, a personal commitment is reasonable. Right now, there are two or three senators on the Republican side who have to check the box to go forward with the bill. They control the floor of the Senate. If they want to control the floor of the Senate, let them stand at their desks and make a speech to show that commitment. 
And again, you know, there's this weird dichotomy right now going on because there are a whole bunch of progressive bills being passed by the U.S. House, being uh, uh, introduced by the White House. I know Desi Doyne you'll talk about in your Green News report coming up in a little bit, this massive nearly $4 trillion infrastructure bill. Uh, infrastructure and climate bill. Yeah, I think it's safe to say Well, that's the hope, at least. Right. You know, that that uh, the Biden White House is is putting forward, is hoping to move forward. They've just put forward the very progressive one point nine trillion dollar. And again, that's a huge number. American Rescue Plan. And remember, nobody would be getting anything if Democrats had not found a way to get around Republicans obstruction. So there's this dichotomy where they're, you know, putting forward this big, bold, progressive agenda. To address the American people's needs. Yes, and yet we're then forced to fight still for the very lowest hanging fruit when it comes to, for example, gun safety laws. Oh, please let us close the holes in the background checks. You know, I was glad to see uh, Joe Biden saying, you know what, we need to just ban these assault weapons, period, like we, like we used to. Yeah. But, you know, so the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, gun safety uh, regulations, background checks, and sort of the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to reforming the filibuster. We're not even really talking about changing the rules. We're just talking about, oh, instead of, you know, calling the cloakroom and saying, yeah, I'm filibustering that one and then leaving town, you actually have to stay and actually have a filibuster. And it's not really reforming it so much as following the rules the way that they used to be applied. Which you would think, you know, people in favor of Senate traditionalism. The institutionalists. And conservatives who don't believe in change, why they would be very happy to go back to the way it used to be, wouldn't they? Apparently not. Durbin's vocal support of uh, reforming the filibuster comes amid a growing group now of Democratic senators pushing for change. Some are even saying the filibuster should be abolished altogether. But those uh, folks remain in the uh, in the minority. And until then, uh, we're going to be fighting for each and every one of these bills, trying to figure out no matter how good they are. Well, how the hell are we actually going to get them passed? So buckle up to talk about that for a while. <laughs> OK, uh, before we get to your Green News report on our on our previous broadcast, uh, if you missed it, I interviewed uh, Alabama governor, former Alabama governor Don Siegelman, the former Democratic governor who was the last Democrat uh, to serve as governor in the state. I like to say the most recent Democratic governor to serve in the state. That was uh, before he was taken down back in 2003, God, almost 20 years ago, by what he describes as a Karl Rove orchestrated stolen election on computer tabulation systems in the middle of the night when he was running for his second term. And then by a Department of Justice hit job to charge him with a bribery charge that more than 100 state attorneys general, both Democratic and Republicans, have described as something that had never actually been considered to be a crime, uh, at least until Don Siegelman was charged with it during the George W. Bush administration. Well, we spoke with uh, Governor Siegelman because in, in, in light of what looks as if it will be a successful campaign now to hold a recall election against California's progressive Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, later this year. Siegelman had a few thoughts on that recall effort by Republicans, that hit job by this Republican cabal now 
And Siegelman knows a thing or two about Republican cabals against Democratic governors. So if you missed that conversation uh, with uh, the governor, you can, of course, download it for free at Bradblog.com anytime. Thanks to those who support our work at Bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. But I thought I would share some of the responses over the past 24 hours or so to that conversation. Marilyn writes in via email to bradcast at bradblog.com to say, Brad, fabulous interview with Don Siegelman. Just wonderful. Please do it again. He has so much knowledge and wisdom to offer. I know what the Democrats in California need to do to keep Gavin Newsom in office, she writes. Get Stacey Abrams out here to run (laughs) the anti-recall effort. Will you pass that message along to the people you know who are in a position to make something like that happen? We need her, says Marilyn. Well, uh, maybe, but as I responded uh, to Marilyn to say, why, what you're looking at me, well, Desi, I'm just what, thinking, what's your response to that? Stacey Abrams has her hands very full yes. trying to save yes. Georgia, so I, I totally respect the work that she is doing there, and I believe that she has a model that can be replicated <laughs> Well, exactly by people who actually live in a state. So I love the idea, and yeah. I think we need to do to uh, uh, bring out a Stacey Abrams-type person in <laughs> California to lead the way so that Stacey Abrams can save Georgia. Well, yeah, it's kind of what I said Oh, really? I, to Marilyn, yeah. I said, listen, I, I'm I'm all in favor of it. I love Stacey Abrams. She's great. But, you know, we can't really count on Stacey Abrams to save everyone everywhere, can we? <laughs> I mean, it would be nice if California progressives, we got a lot of them here, oh, if they yeah. stood up to protect one of their own in this case, especially in a state where, as uh, Brandblog legal analyst Ernie Canning noted in retweeting yesterday's show, he said, quote, the recall is a desperate ploy by a California GOP which hasn't won a statewide election since 2006 and has been reduced to third-party status behind registered Dems and no party preference voters. Uh, Ernie said their only hope is a low turnout election, hence the recall. Well, I think he's right on that last point. He is almost accurate when it comes to party registration. According to the latest numbers from the California Secretary of State, uh, Shirley Weber, who Dr. Shirley Weber, who recently uh, took the role after she replaced uh, Alexander uh, Alex Padilla, who had been Secretary of State, but now he's been appointed to fill uh, Vice uh, President Kamala, you, Kamala Harris's, Harris's Senate seat. Senate seat, thank you. And I'm delighted that he is no longer Secretary of State. In any <laughs> event, uh, her office, the new Secretary of State's office, uh, emailed uh, me on Friday uh, new numbers, new registration numbers, showing that Democrats now make up 46.17 percent Of all the registered voters in California, Republicans make up barely more than half of that number. They uh, they're twenty four point one four percent. And I realize I'm giving you detailed numbers here, but there's a reason for that, because the no party preference voters uh, come in just below Republicans, making up twenty three point seven three percent of the state voters. That is just shy Of the 24.14% of Republicans at this time. So I'm not yet, I don't know if we can yet call them third party status, 
but they are about half as much as uh, the Democrats and almost the same number uh, of those who call themselves no party preference. There are still several other parties, actual third parties, with a tiny percentage of registrations in the state, including the largest of them. Do you know which uh, after the let's see, after the uh, Democrats, Republicans and no party preference? Do you know who has the uh, I would expect Libertarian. You might expect that. But in fact, it is the American Independent Party, which, by the way, you were once a member of. Yes, because I misunderstood what they were. I thought they stood for (laughs) the no party preference selection. So that's why I accidentally selected that. and was very disappointed to find that they kind (laughs) of have that that sort of misleading name. Not only misleading name, but they are a far, far right party. Yeah. Uh, And so I think you're (laughs) not alone in. uh, uh, We know a lot of people have made that mistake. Yeah. Who have registered as independents and, uh, you know, wanted to register as independent, which is actually called no party preference, uh, but actually registered as American independent. It is very confusing. But in California, the, the way to actually register as an actual independent is as a no party preference option. There are, however, according to the secretary of state, uh, her, her notice on Friday, about 1.1 percent of voters who are registered as unknown or other. So if you include them with no party preference, then, yeah, Republicans come in third in the state. But in a state where Democrats so vastly outnumber Republicans, I can only hope that the Democrats here step up and defend one of their own from another hit job akin to the scam that, yes, brought down Democratic Governor Gray Davis Uh, only to see him replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger in another recall election some years ago. But Democrats out here better wake up to what's going on, because right now, off-year recall elections are the only way that Republicans can win statewide, and even then, only if Democrats do not show up and vote. So, uh, hey, wake up, Democrats. Ely, a listener on uh, KPFK out here in L.A., uh, emails to say, Hey, Brad, I find it interesting that these recall Republicans are the exact same ones who've walked lockstep with former President Trump, accepted his public lying and dishonesty, as well as have shown support for the lawmaker Republicans who voted to overturn the rightly and honestly won 2020 election. Hopefully they won't win. Well, We hope, Ely, but we will see. I seem to be one of the few folks on the airwaves actually talking about this at all, at least on the non-wingnut side of things. And finally, if you did hear uh, yesterday's show, you know that we had some phone problems at the end of the show as callers were ringing in on the uh, conversation. And as usual, I blamed it all on Desi. And I fired her, I believe, <laughs> twice during uh, during yesterday's show alone. Well, you have some supporters out there, Des. Oh, good. Listener Orchestra <laughs> Works. Uh, he emailed me, I think it's a he, at bradcast at bradblog.com to say, Brad, well, we the bouncy house people. <laughs> I've often called this listener a bit crazy. Uh, we the bouncy house people vote to unanimously retain dear Miss Desi. Oh, thank you. There you go. <laughs> so you're back. You're unfired yet again. And speaking of the not fired Desi Doyen, her latest Green News report, hot out of the oven, is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> (laughs) 
The Bratcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okie dokie. As promised. Boy, a tough day. I know. Tough day. As promised, however, our latest Green News report. Torrential rainfall has led to widespread flooding across portions of New South Wales. Catastrophic flooding, the latest disaster to pummel Australia. Climate-related disasters now produce the most refugees in the world, plus... So we're going to have to do equal parts looking to the future, but also taking care of what we've already got with an eye toward climate with an eye toward equity and with an eye toward all the jobs that we can create while also making it all safer. Biden White House prepares massive infrastructure jobs bill. All of those massive jobs and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. A recent study even estimated that an average person globally could be ingesting about a credit card's worth of plastic into their system every week. Which kind of explains Capital One's new slogan, What's in your stomach? You are what you eat. Does that make sense? No. This is your Green News Report. Apparently it's 1.5% cash back, a few thousand free airline miles, and a f***ing load of plastic. Okay, Dizzy Doyen, drought, heat, wildfires... Is there anything that has not hit Australia over the past couple of years? Asteroids? Oh, well, uh, be careful. (laughs) True. In Australia, nearly 20,000 people in New South Wales have been forced to evacuate the worst flooding in decades after relentless rain triggered flash floods in some of the same areas hit by record bushfires a year ago. Some areas saw five times their average monthly rainfall for the month of March. Five times in just four days. And there's more rain in the forecast. The flash floods have swept entire homes off of their foundations. In a press conference on Monday, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian called it the worst flooding in 50 years, beyond most residents' experience, and highlighted the repetitive disasters hitting Australia. So we can't underestimate the ferocity of the extreme weather conditions. We've gone from extreme drought, extreme bushfires, now extreme flood. And we have to put that in context. And our first and foremost priority is to make sure people know they could be in danger and make sure they've got their plans ready. Meanwhile, a new study has found that the pollution from last year's Australian bushfires injected huge amounts of smoke into the stratosphere, causing record atmospheric pollution over the southern hemisphere, according to a new study. The researchers calculated that smoke pollution was nearly three times higher than the monthly averages prior to the wildfires and similar to air pollution levels caused by a moderately large volcanic eruption. Mm. A different report has found that natural and climate-related disasters, not wars, now create the most refugees. The International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies reports that in just the last six months, over 12 million people around the world were pushed out of their homes. 
80% of that 12 million were displaced due to natural and climate-related disasters. Asian and Pacific countries bore the brunt with 26 climate disasters last year, including three storms that hit the Philippines in a single month that drove a million people from their homes and left three million without basic needs. I guess I would say that's shocking, except for the fact that I listened to the Green News report. You have been warning about exactly this for many, many years now. Here in the U.S., in a ruling with national implications, a bankruptcy judge has ruled that bankrupt coal company Black Jewel can walk away from at least 30 permits in four states under a liquidation agreement. The company must try to sell nearly 200 other mine sites, according to the agreement, but they can abandon those, too, if they find no buyers, leaving taxpayers to foot the cleanup bill. So the taxpayers help subsidize these coal mines in the first place, and now the taxpayers get to clean up the mess when the coal companies walk away with all the profits, which they don't have, because now they're bankrupt. Correct. The plan is sound. Finally, AP reports that Biden White House aides have put together a $3 trillion infrastructure and jobs bill to revive the economy and create millions of jobs repairing and rebuilding the nation's crumbling infrastructure after decades of deferred maintenance. The package will focus on climate resilience and transitioning the nation to clean energy as part of Biden's Build Back Better campaign pledge. Democratic leaders have signaled they will probably use budget reconciliation to pass the bill if Republicans choose to block it. In a recent interview with MSNBC, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg made the economic case. And I will say this about infrastructure investment. Unlike what was promised in the past about things like tax cuts for the wealthy, when you make an investment in infrastructure, it really does pay for itself. It's got a return on the investment. And I do think that ought to be part of the math as we're thinking about the finances here. Now, let's just think about tax cuts and giving all the money to the rich people. But this is potentially very good news. This huge, what, $3 trillion infrastructure bill? Yeah. We have been waiting for this for a very long time. We'll see how much of it they can actually get through with a simple majority vote in the U.S. Senate. But I think a lot of the climate bill is going to be found in the infrastructure bill. One hopes. One hopes indeed. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. So build me up, build me up, don't break my heart. Did you choose this song because you don't want Democrats to build you up just to let you down? No, it's because uh, Joe Biden's Build Back Better. Ah, got it. <laughs> but I'm perfectly uh, ready for them to let everybody down. <laughs> that was also a part of it. So uh, good eye, Desi Doyen. Uh, one more point. We said what else could hit Australia? It turns out... There's a mice plague in New South Wales. Millions and millions of mice everywhere. Unbelievable. That we figured out after we laid down today's Green News report. Anyway, we have to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated, no matter the uh, tragic circumstances. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, a service made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support our work and help us continue to rake the muck over the uh, public airwaves. Thank you. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. 
You'll find me at The Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Why do you be-